today. It is increment 170 of our study in We See Jesus. And today we'll be tackling the subject of the end of all contradiction. It might end up being a part one or it might be the whole shoot and match all at once. And so we are generally located in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 16 through 20, that final paragraph of this section of Hebrews that began with 511, or there is an inclusio between 510 and 620 where in both cases, Jesus as, is referred to as an archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we're in the last paragraph of that section, which precedes the arguably what is the central section, which is 7 1 to 10 18. A lot of commentators think that's the central section. We'll find out, and we'll find out as we go. But we'll begin with prayer. Father, you know, and your son knows, and your spirit knows that there are certain griefs and sorrows that people experience for which there has never been a sympathy card ever written and for which there is no real verbal expressions of sympathy or consolation. And we know that those who hear these messages often experience these kinds of griefs, this kind of sorrow and so I pray that today's message and that, in fact, all the messages that are coming from our study in Hebrews will convey an inexpressible joy to those who have experienced these indescribable griefs, ones that they can't talk about with others. And these who experience these things are called the poor in spirit. Father, through this message and through all the messages of Hebrews, may the poor in spirit know that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. May there be a conveying of your joy and the joy of your son and the joy that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit through these messages. And may this joy find its way into the deepest recesses of the heart to overcome sorrow, overcome grief, and to be greater than the mere human expression of sympathy or that which a human counselor could bring about. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. The end of all contradiction, a hopeful message in itself. And speaking of hope, abandon all hope, ye who enter here is the inscription over the gates of hell in Dante's Inferno. It's a part of the epic poem called Dante's Divine Comedy, which narrates Dante's journey through hell, purgatory, and heaven. I think a lot of modern conceptions of hell and purgatory and heaven have come from that non-biblical writing. Perhaps no other sentence in literature expresses more clearly the hopelessness that is the experience 
of someone in the mythical place called hell. Or we could even say the hopelessness of someone who believes there is such a place and believes they're going there. The Divine Comedy is not too unlike the writings of Enoch, especially First Enoch, which is also filled with supposed visions of heaven and hell. Contrary to these apocryphal and mythical visions, however, the Bible tells us that hope, not hell, is inescapable until it's finally realized in future world. Until then, the inscription over the gates of Hebrews could be abandon all hopelessness, ye who enter here. For when we enter the heavenly tabernacle by the newly paved and freely traveled living road through the blood of Jesus, we have indeed abandoned all hopelessness. Hebrews itself is the end of all contradiction to hope for all of humanity and for all of creation. So we take up again with Hebrews 6.16. Now men customarily swear oaths by something greater than themselves and for them the oath for confirmation. Let's stop right there. The oath for confirmation in the Greek is a phrase that looks like this. It's E-I-S, ice, and then B-E-B-A-I-O-S-I-N. And then ho, orkos, or horkos, O-R-K-O-S. So it's the oath for confirmation. Bebeasen. The noun bebeosin, bebeosin here means guarantee. It links up with this, the adjective bebayan. The adjective is related to that, B-E-B-A-I-O-N. You'll see all this in print. I hope it's helpful to you. But it links up with the noun bebayan in Hebrew 6.19 regarding this hope which is grounded in the immutable oath fortified promise of God to Abraham a promise which savingly embraces us all and all of humanity and all of creation for that matter that oath fortified promise to Abraham coupled with the oath fortified oracle to Jesus whose archpriesthood has universally and eternally redemptive significance. They are related. Bebayon, the adjectival form, or the noun form, rather, bebayon, is, means firm. Make that an adjective, bebayon, B-E-B-A-I-O-N. It means firm, secure, and strong. Now, since the oath renders the promise and the oracle all the more certain, grounded as they are in God's absolute veracity, then the hope which we have is absolutely secure. 
That's why joy is so often connected with hope because when that hope is secure and when our faith is the substance of things hoped for, then joy is experienced in the believing, <clears throat> as Romans fifteen thirteen says. The secure hope is inner certitude, inner certitude. It is the full assurance of hope, ten pleroforian tes elpidos. We already saw that phrase in Hebrews 6.11. It is this secure hope then is inner certitude. <clears throat> In a way, we're continuing the anatomy of hope here. It is the full assurance of hope in Hebrews 6.11. If something is immutably established, that is, established and incapable of being changed, something that we call incontrovertible. If something is immutably established, then it follows that one can be convinced it is sure and secure. If what is immutably established and thus sure and secure, then our oath then our confidence, rather, in it can be firm and resolute. So if what is immutably established and thus sure and secure, then if it is sure and secure, then our confidence in it can be firm and resolute. Our hope is both sure and secure because of the oath-fortified promise made by God to Abraham and, secondly, the oath-fortified oracle uttered by God to Jesus. Our hope is sure because of the absolute veracity of God. It's secure because Jesus, a forerunner for us, that's a great expression of divine promeity, because Jesus, a forerunner has already entered for us into the region beyond the second curtain of the heavenly tent. We'll have a lot more to say about that heavenly tent down the road. As a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, our great arch priest, Jesus, has offered a single, unrepeatable, universally and eternally efficacious sacrifice for the sins of the whole of humanity. The oath for confirmation is also the end of all contradiction. That's the rest of the verse. For them, the oath of or for confirmation is the end of all <clears throat> contradiction. Now, we're going to take off on that term, contradiction. We're going to do, well, sort of weave a word study into our study here on the word antilogia, A-N-T-I-L-O-G-I-A. Sometimes it is translated as contradiction. Sometimes it means something more. It can mean opposition. It can mean <clears throat> violent rebellion or hostility. And we're going to look at all the nuances of that term antilogia in our study today. It'll be woven in with the rest of it. 
So the oath for confirmation is also the end of all contradiction. As we saw in our study on inferences, when we reach an unconditioned conclusion, we have reached a sound judgment against which there can be leveled no effective contradiction. This speaks to Newman's illative sense, which we looked at a couple times, which he describes as the power of judging or concluding in its perfection, its final state, that which is also related to certitude. And Newman does relate that to certitude and does quite an essay on that within his book on the essay or on a grammar of ascent. And that which is called certitude, Hebrews calls the complete assurance of hope. So this brings to mind the promise that Jesus gave to his disciples for the time of persecution between A.D. 30 and A.D. 70, when they were handed over to the synagogues and prisons and brought before kings and governors because of their confession of Jesus' name. When that happens... Jesus said, you'll have an opportunity to witness. He promised to give them, quote, eloquence, literally a mouth, eloquence and wisdom that none of their adversaries will be able to contradict or withstand. And he uses a word that is the verbal form of this noun, antilogia, which is anti Lego, which is to speak against. The wisdom that these apostles will have will be given by Jesus and they will be able to express it before their persecutors, before magistrates and kings, before the Sanhedrin, before the council, and it will be a mouth and wisdom or eloquence and an expression of wisdom that none of their adversaries will be able to contradict or withstand. And contradict is anti-lego, withstand is antipen, which is, you'll find both of these in the written form of the message. And it's basically found in Luke 21, 12 to 15, a prophecy regarding AD 30 to 70, that time span of great persecution, not referring to our future as a lot of people like to do today that are messed up with their eschatology, although of course it can have application. When we reach conclusions that adversaries can't contradict or withstand, that means that we will have reached certitude, that is the full assurance of our convictions. When adversaries can't successfully contradict the truths of the gospel of God about his son, they sometimes resort to irrationality and violence even. Or they may walk away without conceding defeat and stubbornly adhere to their contrary convictions or they may become convicted or even converted. The end of contra all contradiction is passes autois antoligia peras, means the limit or end of all contradictions. Again, you'll see that in print. I'm not going to take the time to write all this up on our board here. Antilogias 
for contradiction is found not only here in Hebrews 6.16, but also in Hebrews 7.7, where it describes the irrefutable principle, the lesser is blessed by the greater. That's a principle. And that principle will be used by the author rhetorically in his argument for the superiority of Melchizedek, the blesser over Levi, the blessee, and thus he argues for the superiority of the priesthood that Melchizedek, the blesser, represents over the priesthood that Levi, the blessee, signifies. We have plenty of time to deal with that if God gives us time and space and life and breath when we get to Hebrews 7. Antilogia, then, is also found in Hebrews 12, 3. 12, 2, and 3, that passage, very important passage. There it is said that what Jesus endured from people who were thoroughly controlled by sin, hamartoloi, that's a special word for sinners. It doesn't just mean sinners like we're all generically sinners, but it means people that are completely committed to unbelief and untruth, completely committed to adversarial ideologies or religious beliefs. So it is found there where Jesus endured the antilogia of people thoroughly controlled by sin and thus completely committed to unbelief and untruth. In the context there, antilogia means hostility, therefore, not just contradiction. It denotes the opposition both in speech and action of those who oppose Jesus and even intended to kill him if we look at John 5.18 and John 8.40 through 44. The meaning of antilogia is also conveyed in Jude, and we want to go to Jude, Jude 1.10 and following. The meaning of antilogia in Jude 1.10 through 11 means hostile rebellion. There, Jude warns his readers of a category of persons who, quote, slander anything they don't understand. And if that's not a megatrend, I don't know what is today. In social media and TV and newscasters that are supposed to be objectively reporting the news instead spend time slandering that which they don't understand. People who negate the existence of God slander him whom they do not understand. People who slander the Bible slander that which they do not understand, and they may slander the Bible because those who preached it to them have no understanding of it either. But this kind of people who offer such hostility slander anything they don't understand. He goes on to say that they operate on the level of self-destructive animal instinct. And they have traveled on the road of Cain. Pastor Brown has been teaching on that in his forays up to Cranberry. And we've been talking a little bit about his series, which is fascinating. They have traveled on the road of Cain. Now, the road of Cain... As it's found here, stands in total contrast to, quote, the newly paved and actively traveled road, 
in Hebrews 10.20. The road of Cain, in other words, is the opposite of the living access road to the Holy of Holies that was paved through the blood of Jesus and that passes through the torn curtain of his flesh. That road is also called the King's Highway in Isaiah 35.8. It's also known as the Way of Holiness and that only those who have been purified by the blood of Christ can travel on it. So another hint, even though it's early, remember 2021 is the year of the great king. Perhaps, perhaps 2022 will be called the year of the great king's highway. Those who have traveled the road of Cain, quote again with Jude here, have abandoned themselves to the error of Balaam. We looked at that recently for profit. They, quote, die in Korah's rebellion. Korah's rebellion here is antilogia, so it means obviously something much more intense than mere contradiction there, antilogia, as it does in Hebrews 12, where Jesus endured the contradiction of sinners, people totally committed to an ideology of untruth and unbelief. He endured their hostility, which was homicidal and murderous and diabolical and devilish. So those who have traveled the road of Cain have abandoned themselves to the error of Balaam for profit and they die or perish in Korah's rebellion, Antilogia. That's Korah who rebelled against the divine authority given to Moses and to Aaron. Jude goes on to, in his <clears throat> dramatic depiction of these people, who had, quote, turned the grace of God into promiscuity in Jude 1.4. He says, and that's happening all across the board today too, and we have to be aware of that danger. Jude was going to write about the common salvation that we all have, but then he was strongly urged by the Holy Spirit instead to address those who had turned the grace of God into promiscuity. They say the people that go around preaching, well, we're saved by grace, so it doesn't matter what we do. We're saved by gra grace so that it doesn't matter if what we say comes from unclean lips. They are unlike Isaiah who woke up one day and said, I am a man of unclean lips. He wasn't like Christians today who think nothing of using foul and obscene language constantly under the rubric of I'm saved by grace. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He pulled the log out of his own eye first and then he was able to see that around him was a whole society of people of unclean lips. And I have to check myself on this first, of course, because I have said that recently. I have said that of myself. Father, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in a society of people of unclean lips. You can't avoid it on TV now, even on cable. You can't and even cable news. You can't avoid it in social media, of course. You can't avoid it in drama, movies, TV, and everyday language. But it doesn't mean we have to turn the grace of God into such obscenity or that we have a license to do so. We don't. 
And so what we what comes from our mouth determines the quality of our life. I don't know if you know that or not, but if you read 1 Peter 3 carefully, you will find that out. So uh, that was a preacherly deviation. Jude goes on to say that these same types of people are dangerous hidden reefs at your love feasts. You're the ship, you're traveling along, you think everything's going well, but underneath you is a hidden coral reef that's about ready to tear your underneath to, to pieces and sink your ship. People who flatter, people who come up and schmooze, people that are users, people that hide their animal instincts with a refined exterior. That's Jude's talking about these kind of people. He must have been to some dinner parties lately in high places like Washington, D.C. or Hollywood or elsewhere. He describes them as hidden reefs in your love feast who feast with you irreverently and without sharing. He describes them as waterless clouds carried along by winds and as fruitless trees in late autumn which are twice dead and uprooted. <laughs> if that's not enough, I, I know this is conveying great joy to all of you out there, uh, he, is if that's not enough, he describes them as waves of the sea that cast up the foam of their shameful deeds. And you don't have to go too far in your imagination to see what he's talking about there. Cast up the foam of their shameless deeds. And then, finally... He describes them as wandering, orbitless luminaries for whom the gloom of darkness has been reserved throughout the age. Meaning, this kind of people throughout this whole age have nothing but darkness in their mind. Their understanding is darkened throughout this age. It's in a prediction they're going to hell, grow up and get some Bible doctrine in your soul. That's not what he's talking about. But in any case, it's a very colorful profile by Jude, the brother of James, and it's a very graphic profile. It would be something today that would get him canceled from a group, uh, from any number of venues of social media, let's say, without mentoring, mentioning names. A graphic profile, and may I say, not too flattering. Jude goes on to say that it was of these people or of this kind of people in Jude 1, 14 to 15 that, speaking of Enoch, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these people. This is a quote from the book 1 Enoch 1, 9. And that means that even though Enoch is not canonized as a book of the Bible, and I don't think it should be for many reasons, but there are nevertheless parts of Enoch, especially this one declaration, that have been canonized by their quotation in the Bible. There is, the Enoch isn't the literal prophet here. Enoch is a pseudepigraphic work, a pseudepigraphical work, meaning someone wrote it and borrowed the name Enoch, who is who was indeed the seventh from Adam in the Genesis genealogy. But Enoch borrowed his name to make a narrative that imagines what Enoch must have seen when he was translated out of this world 
and into God's presence, the things he must have seen on his journey. And so it's all speculation. But Enoch did make one prophecy, this Enoch, and it was recorded in, quoted in Jude 1, 14 to 15. Look, here comes the Lord with battalions of holy ones to execute judgment and to convict every soul concerning all their impious deeds and concerning all the harsh and violent speeches that ungodly sinners, there's that word hamartoloi again used as it is in Hebrews 12. Three, that sinners have made against him. Now, again, even though the pseudepigraphical book called One Enoch didn't make the canon, this prophecy by Enoch was extant at the time of the writing of Jude's epistle in one form or another. This prophecy, therefore, must be regarded as having been canonized by Jude. So it's true. It is comforting. Here's what I got out of it. It is comforting and satisfying to know that all the outrageous and unjust speeches and blasphemies that such people have spoken against the Lord throughout history and in our own time, along with every truth-denying philosophy and oppressive and unjust policy, will be seen to be what they really are in the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, when unbelief in all its fruits will wither in the light and heat of the glory of Jesus Christ, and all will yield to faith as every knee bows and every tongue acknowledges him with praise. So take heart when you hear these speeches and hear these slanderous things being said, sometimes by people in high governmental positions who, in the vanity of their mind, in the blackout of the soul which has been created through their rejection of the gospel and the life of God, they can't help saying these things, but it'll all be revealed. This will happen at the final setting right of all things. God himself guarantees it with an oath in Isaiah 45, 23, for he says this, I swear by myself that every knee will bow and every tongue will acknowledge me with praise. Opposition in act. It's another definition for antilogia. Opposition in act or by action seems to be the correct meaning in both Jude one eleven and Hebrews 12.3. And we're taking a foray, foray into Hebrews 12. We have the license to do that if we want. We don't have to just do straight verse by verse. So we're taking a little foray, foray into Hebrews 12, and I'm not done with that yet. So opposition in act also another definition of antilogia, especially if you look at the Gospels and read of the violent opposition of those who carried out plans to kill Jesus. Again, John 5.18, John 8.40, John 8.58. But in Hebrews 6.16, see how we circled back? The idea is that the end of all argument or disputation or opposing opinions is brought about by an oath for confirmation, just like it's the end of contradiction when we come to a virtually unconditioned conclusion about something. 
the end of all contradiction. Opposition as speech, therefore, can certainly be included in anti-logia, especially since the word logia speaks of speech, anti-speech. But it can be speech acts also, as we've seen. And so opposition as speech can certainly be included, and that's the idea conveyed in Jude one fifteen. So let's go to Hebrews 6.17. So when God determined to show his unchangeable purpose, even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he interposed with an oath. Now we've been using the word interposed here because I think one translation put it that way, and I liked it. But it means that God himself mediated to guarantee the promise. And that's what I would really translate this as in my own way. The verb used, as we've seen in a previous increment, is E-M-E-S-I-T-E-U-S-E-N, emesitusen. It's the aorist, active, indicative, third-person, singular form of the verb mesituo. And the noun form of this word mesites means mediator, as found in Hebrews 8.6, Hebrews 9.15, 12.24, as well as 1 Timothy 2.5. God himself, the idea here is, God himself stood between the promise and the recipients of the promise and swore an oath. Just as he stood behind his oracle to Jesus with a divine oath. So our translation of Hebrews should reflect this, that he mediated with a guarantee for the promise. So this is what I would translate it as from 6, 17 through 20. So when God determined to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he mediated to guarantee the promise with an oath so that by two immutable things, in both of which God is not able to lie, we who have fled for refuge would have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and secure, a hope that enters into the sanctuary behind the curtain where a forerunner has already entered for us. Jesus, having become an archpriest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. And that is where the end of this section that begins with Hebrews or is launched at Hebrews 5.10 ends. In both of those we have the priest forever, the archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we began with hope or hopelessness and versus hope. So we continue with the subject of hope. Even though the word for hope, which is the Greek word elpidos in this case, E-L-P-I-D-O-S, which is an inflection of elpis, which is E-L-P-I-S, elpis. So even though the word for hope Elpidos only appears once in this paragraph, and that's in 618. Hope is the obvious referent of the relative pronoun hain, the word hain, which we would translate as which. So we would say, this hope which we have, we would know that it meant which hope we have. This hope 
which hope we have. So this little relative pronoun refers to elpidos or elpis. So we do have a reference to hope, even though the word doesn't appear there. So we have hope again. So again, even though the word for hope only appears once in this paragraph, 616 to 20, and in 618, hope is the obvious referent of the relative pronoun hain in 619, and it's also the implicit subject of the verb eis erkomai in 619. You'll see all this in print, so it'll be helpful. So this hope is what we have as an anchor for the soul. And it is this hope that has entered into the interior of the heavenly tabernacle behind its second curtain. Our hope is already there with Jesus. And our hope is already in our soul. Correspondingly then, the hope in our soul corresponds to the hope that is already there behind the second curtain in the highest heaven. That's like saying Christ Jesus in us is the hope of glory, even, the, even as he is the hope of glory, having gone for us as a forerunner into heaven. So there's a correspondence between what is interior to us and what is in the heavenlies right now. Now, because hope, or elpis, E-L-P-I-S, is both the implied referent of the relative pronoun and the implicit subject of the verb has entered, then our translation of Hebrews 6.18 to 19 should reflect this. So I did reflect it in my translation. So that by two immutable things, in both of which God is not able to lie, we, ha we who have fled for refuge would have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and secure, a hope that enters into the sanctuary behind the curtain, where a forerunner has already entered for us, Jesus, having become an archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I hope you're beginning to see how that all congeals together. So because Elpis is both the implied referent of the relative pronoun and the implicit subject of the verb has entered, then that's what our translation should reflect. We can't escape from hope in Hebrews, nor can we escape encouragement or paraklesis. We can't escape elpis. Sounds a little like Elvis, but it's elpis. And elpis has not left the building. We can't escape from hope in Hebrews, nor can we escape encouragement because the whole book or the whole homily is a word of encouragement paraclesis so we're reminded of Hebrews purpose as a word of encouragement Hebrews 13 22 with its resounding theme of hope let's run the iron over it again with some emphasis here Hebrews 6 18 so that by two immutable things in both of which God is not able to lie we who have fled for refuge would have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and secure, a hope that enters into the sanctuary behind the curtain where a forerunner has already entered for us, 
Jesus having become an archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek. To this end, therefore, to this end, God himself made oaths for confirmation. And in Hebrews 6.19, hope, el peace, is the referent of the relative pronoun hain. It's the first word, the accusative feminine singular form of the relative feminine pronoun hos, and this pronoun refers to the hope that is set before us in Hebrews 6.19. Consequently, or make that 6.18, the hope that is set before us. Consequently, we would be conveying the proper sense by translating Hebrews 6.18 to 19 this way. See how many times we're reading this passage? See how many times we're running the iron over it? See how much we are focusing on the actual content of this homily. Hebrews 6.18 through 20 reads this way, so that by two immutable things, in both of which God is not able to lie, we who have fled for refuge would have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and secure, a hope that enters into the sanctuary behind the curtain. That's the second curtain in heavenly holy of holies where a forerunner has entered already for us. Jesus, the name is emphatic there. It's placed standing alone with no Elijah or Moses around as in the Mount of Transfiguration vision. Jesus is the word having become an archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we can't escape from hope. Abandon all hopelessness, you who enter here into this Hebrew study. We can't escape from hope in Hebrews. In Hebrews 6.18, it's the hope that's set before us. According to the Lunita lexicon, the verb that is translated set before deployed in Hebrews 6.18 and also, and we're going to go in the next increment to Hebrews 12 again, also in Hebrews 12.2 means that hope in Hebrews 6.18 and joy are subject again in the next increment in Hebrews 12.2 exist in an evident manner. They both exist in an evident manner, like a map set out before you, your route is mapped out. It's evident and set before you. So is your hope. Hope and so is the joy of Jesus as we're going to see which becomes your joy. So hope exists openly and clearly according to Liddell Scott. They add that prokemai the word means to lie before or to lie in front of. Joseph Thayer defines it as the hope open to us offered and given. He adds that the verb prokemai, used here, P-R-O-K-E-I-M-A-I, in Hebrews 12.1, is, quote, used of those things which by any appointment are designed to be done, born, or attained by anyone. So you can't escape hope. You can't escape hope in Hebrews. Abandon all hopelessness. Ye who enter here, and blessed are you who are poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Yours is the joy that this hope spawns.
And thank you, Father, for another opportunity to witness about your Son. Your Spirit has come upon me. Your Spirit has come upon many of us. And when your Spirit comes upon us with power, you make us your witnesses. You make us the witnesses of Jesus. So we have witnessed to him again today. May this witness come forth with power, with clarity, and with the uplifting love of God in the hearers. And I ask this in Jesus' name. While I thank you, Father, for constantly providing to keep this ministry going, to keep these, this message and these messages traveling forth for the edification of the body of Christ and for the evangelism of those without hope and without this joy. I thank you in his name. Amen.